Sometimes it's easy to forget that it's only been 40 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. So much has changed in that time. We've seen a fundamental shift in geopolitics, the coming together of alliances such as NATO, the European Union, not lined up to support Ukraine in the face of Vladimir Putin's aggression. And lots of things that may have come as a bit of a surprise to any casual observer heading into this invasion. Russia's military incompetence and cowardice in targeting civilians, the sheer ability of Ukraine's forces to fight back, the leadership of President Vladimir Zelensky, the flood of people fleeing the country to the millions displaced internally, and the unprecedented sanctions levied against Russia, NATO's unity for that matter. The landscape has changed in 40 days at lightning speed. So what consequences has it already had and what may lie ahead? There are a few better places to answer those questions than my next guest. Joining me now is author and journalist David Frum. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, including of the recent article, A Nation Worth Fighting For, Ukraine. David Frum, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Pleasure to join. Uh, David, you've, you've paid a lot of attention to this over the last, uh, the last month and a bit. It's been 40 days now since Russia invaded Ukraine. Just how much of a jolt to the international system has it been? And, uh, and how surprised have you been by some of the reactions, specifically from Western allies of Ukraine's? I, I, will, I remember very intensely the first day of the war. We had an event at my house, um, and we had as guests at the event two people who had been following the events very closely. Um, Anne Applebaum and Radek Sikorsky. Anne Applebaum, of course, the author of uh, the important book about the Ukraine famine, Radek Sikorsky, former defense and foreign minister of Poland. I asked them to say a few words to uh, the guests, and, and the mood was very sober, as you can imagine. And after it was all over, uh, my wife turned to me and said, um, Putin's going to lose. And this, at the time, it was just an incredible prediction, uh, because we were talking about, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a total disaster, maybe they, but the Russians were on, they, they were so dominant, they were, they were the, the Goliath of the Ukrainian David. I, I said to her, but a week later, we were out for dinner on a date night, and I said, how, how, and at that point, it was clear this thing was turning into a Russian fiasco. How did you know? And she said, well, as, as the person who's in charge of planning things for this family, I can tell when something isn't well thought. <laughs> um, so it was, of course, a huge, um, a huge shock. I mean, the uh, the United States had been warning the Ukrainians for months that Russia was building forces on their border that were capable of the invasion. But of course, the Russians had built done a similar thing almost exactly a year ago in the spring of 2021. They'd also built up forces, and then they had built them down again without acting. And so many inside Ukraine wanted to believe that the danger would pass in uh, February of 2022 as well, and, and it did not. So that was the jolt. Um, and I think the jolt, not to the Ukrainians, but to the world, was um, the astonishing success. I mean, at terrible cost, but the astonishing success of, of the Ukrainian defense. And they've now beaten the Russians back from Kiev. The Russians are now going to dig in and try to attack in the eastern part of the country. And of course, they're waging a campaign of atrocity. Um, but the atrocities, I think, are a sign of, of their inner defeat. Given that, we're seeing now increasing pressure on allies in the West to up sanctions. You've already expressed yeah. some concern about the, the, the very broad impact of these yeah. unprecedented sanctions. Uh, how effective have, this, have the sanctions been? And if we continue to impose more, do you see any downside at all? Well, I wrote early in the war about um, the central bank sanctions that had been imposed. And these, are, these were devastating. Um, in effect, Ru Russia thought it would be able to finance the war, but it built up 
more than 600 U billion US dollars worth of, of reserves, euros, dollars, gold. Um, and, the Europe, and the European and United States central banks and other central banks too have frozen those reserves and Russia hasn't had access to them, which has caused the, the ruble to cease to be a convertible currency. But Russia has something going for it, which is the flow of money from the gas sales into Europe, natural gas, that are continuing. And that delivers them about three quarters of a billion US dollars a day. Um, uh, they're earning about 30% more than they were earning at this, uh, from their gas sales than, than they were earning this time last year. Um, and so if we're going to cut off their money, uh, energy is the next place we have to look. Today, though, we have seen some move in that direction, although the Germans continue to say that it's not feasible. Um, is, is cutting off energy sort of the red line? Do you think that that's going to be the litmus test of this unity? Well, it, it's hard to do. I, I, the Germans are not wrong when they say it's complicated. So, um, but it's becoming more possible every day. So Russia sells oil, which that's easy to replace because oil can come from anywhere in the world. Gas is trickier because gas moves along pipelines and the pipelines are built. You can't just swap out. You, you have to have, have, have a way to get gas from here to there. Um, you can you can compress gas into a, into a liquid form and put it on a boat and float it. And uh, the United States and Canada, to a lesser extent, are, are doing that. But that takes time. For Europe, gas is a fuel to heat homes and, and um, cook food. They don't use it so much for heating and, and cooling for, to make electricity the way we do. Uh, they use it as a direct fuel to heat homes. As the weather warms, um, as the flow of liquid natural gas speeds up. And th this is a place where Canada can play a big part. North America is the, is the superpower of natural gas. There's a giant amount of it underneath Canada and the United States. And it's possible to extract it, compress it, put it into, into liquid form, put it on a boat and send it elsewhere. But you need pipelines to ports and you need facilities to do the compression. And those facilities are complicated and expensive. And Canada has unfortunately, you know, um, been interrupted by protests and, and other kind of agitation. So we need to step all of that up. This is not anti-green uh, because gas can be a transitional fuel because the first goal is you get rid of coal. Your gas is a better fuel than coal. Obviously, they're better fuels than gas. They're coming online. But if, if we can get Europe's gas dependence down by summer, then you can impose really meaningful tensions that will really hurt the Russians. Because you've pointed out in the past that, that Canada's ability to be an effective part of this coalition helping Ukraine has been somewhat limited by our lack of defense spending in some way. There yeah. was a famous quote a few weeks ago by our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, Melanie Jolie that we've become, you know, Canada's great at convening things. And that, of course, yeah. uh, got a lot right. of heat. What do you mean? How does Canada improve then when it comes to these global crises and, and being a more effective partner? Well, I think all the NATO countries have to hit that 2% of GDP target. Um, and that's Canada didn't the, the kinds of things that the British have been giving the Ukrainians, Canada can't give because Canada doesn't have them in the first place. Um, so, so uh, making getting to two percent of GDP on defense. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you're a homeowner, you spend one percent of the value of your house on maintenance. Um, you know, if you you're a giant democracy with a very large standard of living, you can afford to spend two percent of your of your income on insurance to protect the other ninety eight percent and your friends and allies. Um, Canada also has a role to play in in energy, um, and again, I stress the gas part. To go back to Ukraine, you've written that it, it is a, a country worth fighting for. This is something you've talked about for a long time. Liberal democracy. We're watching 
a nation essentially, and this is quite a simplification of it, but a nation on the front lines of this fight, fighting yeah. for it. Um, how important then should we be taking them? Because there's already complaints about inflation, about gas prices and so on. Yeah. Is, this, is this a sacrifice worth making as a society for a country like Ukraine? Well, well the war is driving the inflation. Um, Russia and Ukraine together provide something like 25% of the world's exports of wheat. Um, uh, you know, Ukraine provides, uh, is the world's largest provider of sunflower oil, which is an important cooking fuel in, in less developed countries. Um, and, and of course, the, the food, uh, Russia is a huge producer of, of, of fuel, but also many, many materials. Um, so the war is causing shortages and driving prices, and you will not get those prices under control until peace is, is restored, until both Ukrainian and Russian wheat exports come back to the market. Um, so it's not either or, it's get end the war uh, and you'll alleviate a lot of the price pressure. The specific thing that I said in that, that article about um, Ukraine and fighting for it, and this is again a part where Canada's played an important story. Canada received a large Ukrainian immigration uh, after the Second World War, displaced people. And um, it received a large variety of Ukrainian politics, some of them very reactionary. And Ukraine has often suffered internationally because there have been very reactionary voices in the Ukrainian diaspora, many of them unfortunately based in Canada, who have offered a vision of, U of Ukraine's identity that is exclusive, that, is, that has been anti-Semitic and anti-Polish, um, and groups that had always lived as neighbors and that were separated um, in the chaos after World War II. Um, a Canadian business leader um, found, uh, who had um, achieved great success here, founded a group called the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter to um, open, I, this is, I read about this in this article, and I pay tribute to this man um, and his incredible generosity to re reconnect people who had, whose parents and grandparents had lived as, as neighbors and to build a vision of Ukrainian na nationhood that was open and liberal and democratic and tolerant. And that has been vindicated. You see it in, in the Ukraine of today. It's not just the president of Ukraine who's, who's Jewish. So it's the Ukrainian defense minister. So it was, um, there was a period in the early part of the Zelensky government where both the president and prime minister were Jewish at the same time, something that has not been seen in any country except Israel. Um, Ukraine has always been a melting pot that, um, you know, uh, Greeks along the coast, Poles in the Northwest, um, Jews in the cities, Armenians, Germans, Russians too. Um, and that, that vision of, Ukraine as a European country home to uh, free a free home to peoples of all kinds that is something that is worth fighting for and and, and there's been a Canadian as I detail in that article there's been a Canadian donor who's been at the lead of, of making that vision a reality speaking with author and journalist David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic, we're talking about uh, the 40 days now since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the significant impact it's had on geopolitics and other uh, matters, including here at home in Canada. When we come back, we'll look a little bit more into the Canadian government's reaction to the invasion and just how much more it needs to do or how much pressure it's under to do more in the near future. We'll be right back. And I'm back with David Frum, author and staff writer at The Atlantic, former presidential speechwriter. We've been talking about the invasion of Ukraine and the effectiveness of the response of the country's allies to it. I noticed today is the 73rd anniversary of the creation of NATO. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you been impressed by, by you know, NATO seemed a bit like a child lost for, for several years there. Now it seems yeah. to have found its purpose again. Is, is, that, is that a good thing? Um, that, that is a good thing. And the European Union, too, has demonstrated um, uh, unusual unity and, and effectiveness. Um, you know, I think we've been through a period where um, 
I, I don't think we've had a lot of self-esteem in the Western democratic world. Um, the rise of China, um, you know, the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that we've, we've really doubted our ability to do things. And it was, that's a quite a shift from the 80s and 90s when we felt so self-confident, when we, when we believed in ourselves more. And, and this is a test. Can, uh, can the democratic countries together uh, work together? And can uh, democratic values prevail in the toughest, harshest kind of competition? And the success that we're seeing um, is, is inspiring. And, and this is one of the things that the Ukrainians, this is a gift they are giving to the world. And it demands in return, not just support during the war, but um, reconstruction after. The reconstruction of Ukraine after this war is going to be a gigantic project. Um, and it's going to take a lot of help, assistance. Um, it's going to take inter rapid integration of, of Ukraine into the European Union. Um, it's going to take uh, permission for Ukrainians to work in the countries of the European Union and send money home. And there's going to need to be a lot of aid. And there's going to need to be a united attitude to compel uh, Russia to pay reparations. And that's something uh, that this is my next article for the Atlantic that is appearing, I think, probably tomorrow or the next day. Um, you know, that means things like putting gases, that, putting taxes on Russian gas exports, and then directing those payments to support reconstruction in Ukraine. Uh, but cities, uh, Ukraine cities have been smashed up. It's, it's port facilities, it's airports, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people have, been, have lost their homes. Those will all have to be rebuilt. So a Marshall Plan, in instance, for for a place like Ukraine, and to some extent, do you think yeah. it's possible to? Is it possible to enforce these rules on Russia now? And how do you win the war? And this is an impossible question. Uh, mm -hmm. But where do you see the, the most effective way of neutralizing Russia right now that it's on the back foot? The most important thing to do right now is to continue to squeeze the Russian economy, and that's going to mean um, over the summer and fall, reducing Russian gas exports, um, ideally as close to zero as possible. Hmm. Russian oil exports, again, oil is easier to replace than gas. You can you can cut Russia out of the world oil market, and there's plenty of oil in the world that you may have to pay somewhat more for it, uh, but you can get it. Uh, Europe does not have easy alternatives to Russian gas, which flows along pipelines. Um, but liquid natural gas from the Persian Gulf, from North America, that can begin to replace uh, Russian natural gas, and so can stepped-up use of Wind, um, wind turbines and, and nuclear power. Uh, that There are three nuclear plants in, in Germany that just went offline. Germany needs to bring them back. Belgium has seven nuclear plants and it's considering taking offline. They have to stay online. The French have to do the maintenance on their nuclear uh, plants to keep them working. Um, nuclear has to be part of the energy, the green energy mix of uh, tomorrow. And the, the the bad tendency that you saw in Europe and especially in Germany to say, we're going to get rid of nuclear and replace it with Russian gas. We're going to pretend to be replacing it with green technology, but really we're replacing it with Russian gas. That was a bad, that was a bad choice. It was cheap, but it was bad. Um, so, and then we have to think about how we're going to squeeze resources out of Russia. To, but in the end, Russia is also going to be a very poor country after this war. And so the resources to help Ukraine are going to have to come from the democratic world. But it's going to be worth it. The thing, this is not going to be a sacrifice. Because Ukraine is a country full of highly educated, capable people who, because of their, they were trapped inside a post-Soviet economy, were earning artificially low wages, had an artificially distorted economy. And the analogy to what's going to happen in Ukraine is what happened after World War II in Italy. There was a, there was a big gap 
between the standards of living in Italy and between and Germany, France, and other Northern European countries. The flow of investment, the flow of buying and selling between Italy and Northern Europe, that triggered an economic boom in Italy between in the late 50s and early 60s. But everybody benefited because as the Italians got richer, they could buy they could buy you know new German cars, they could buy new uh, uh, they could buy French wheat, they could buy. Um, they had better things to sell and better things to buy. And if, if Ukraine catches up, European sand is a flipping, that's not a drain on Europe. That is going to be an enormous boon and stimulus to Europe, and not just to Europe, to the whole world. Speaking with David Frum, author and staff writer at The Atlantic, we're talking about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine now 40 days in and the impact it's had in many parts of the world. Uh, quickly, when we come back, we'll talk about, briefly about Canada, uh, Canada's reaction and the fact that it came so soon after a very divisive issue, the convoy uh now sort of had a unifying issue the war in ukraine uh we'll see what david thinks about uh what impact that's had on government in this country we'll be right back i'm back with david from author and staff writer at the atlantic former presidential speech writer we're talking about russia's invasion of ukraine and the many impacts it's had around the world what have you made so far of uh, because you did write quite extensively about the free quote unquote freedom convoy. This came right on the heels of it. It seemed to change the conversation almost overnight, at least in this country. Um, yeah. How have you, what have you made of the government's uh, performance so far on Ukraine and how does it dovetail with what happened during the convoy? Well, the Canadian government has said, has said all the right things, um, but it has not done the right things, not because it isn't willing, but because it hasn't, Canada has not invested in the capacities. Um, and, you know, it's been a long time that Canada's under-invested in defense and the Trudeau government, this, the current Trudeau government has certainly been an under-investor. Um, and Canada has not been doing its part to um, get its gas to market. Uh, but one of the things that we can all do is uh, the awareness of these terrible atrocities, of the sufferings of people, of these, uh, of these um, the, ma- the, the crimes against civilians. Um, that is something that we, you know, uh, keep the attention of the world on. Um, the Russians are going to lie and lie and lie. One of the things that has been heartening is that their social media propaganda that had so much negative impact um, in the 2010s seems suddenly to be losing its power as people wake up and understand how the Russians use these methods, how um, how they try to deceive, how they try to make it seem like they're victims, you know, shot themselves in the head and then handcuffed themselves. Um, uh, that you know that, that uh, it, just as they used to say, the Syrians gassed themselves, which they didn't. The Russians gassed them, or at least the Russian clients client in Syria gassed them. When, I mean, you wrote a lot about this back in 2014, when uh, during, during the Little Green Man, and how effective that uh, yeah. that information yeah. campaign was by Russia. It's been interesting to see it backfire so badly this time, or just how effective, to some extent, the Ukrainians have been, and President Zelensky in particular. He was at the Grammys last yeah. night. I mean, that's, that's yeah. remarkable to think of a Ukrainian leader speaking at the Grammys. Well, th- there's a famous story, a true story about Ronald Reagan of someone saying to him, I, I don't understand how you can be an actor and be president of the United States. And Reagan replied, that's funny. I don't understand how you can't be an actor and be president <laughs> of the United States. And, and there's something about that in Zelensky. I mean, he understands modern communication. Um, and one of the things that Zelensky does in his communication that I've remarked is how he uses a single word um his most his first and most powerful appearance was that that appearance with his uh, with his core team in um in the 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 russians are spreading the claim that he had run away and so he appeared in a very visible kiev streets uh, streetscape Uh, i was able to visit twice in the 
uh, 2010s, and I, I instantly recognized that view. Anyone who knows the city knows it. And there he is with his core team, and he just uses the Ukrainian word tut for here, and just says, I'm here, he's here, here's here. He just says that one word over again. He released a video the other day on the single word was, and he spoke this one in English, um, and that how, you know, what it means when you say, this was my kitchen, this was my home, this was my... And then it becomes increasingly powerful. This was my dog. And he shows a dog that's been killed. This was my child. And uh, and that single word was becomes the theme of his speech. So he does this very effectively. Um, and what the Ukrainians are teaching us all is that in these contests of information, truth is the single most powerful asset um, you can have. And the Ukrainians have truth on their side and the Russians have only lies. As a few last questions, we did see um, a reminder yesterday, at least in Hungary and, and in Serbia, that, that Putin is not without his allies. Um, what kind of impact do you think the election of Viktor, the re-election of Viktor Orban will have on this unity we've been seeing so far within Europe? Well, Hungary is, of course, a member of both NATO and the European Union. Um, I don't think people understand how economically dependent Hungary is on the European Union. When uh, the, you know, the Hungarians do all the... I, I was able to spend some time there in 2016. They do a lot of boasting and chest beating. But Hungary gets 3% of its budget in direct transfers from the European Union. How big is that? That's, the, that's how much the United States spends on the Pentagon. It's like they, they get the Pentagon for free, courtesy. And all these grifters and extremists and freeloaders who show up and live on Orban's hospitality are all living on money given Orban by the European Union. Um, but... The difference in Orban and Putin is that Orban first leads a small and um, weak country. Second, that Orban knows that. Uh, that. That Orban's secret power has always been that he understands how much he can poke uh, the rest of Europe and where he has to stop. Um, and it's also true because Hungary is a member of the European Union, because they are subject to the jurisdiction of the European um, codes and human rights and European courts, there are things they can't do. I mean, Orban. Uh, has manipulated the press, uh, gerrymandered the election, um, silenced opponents. But um, he's never killed anybody, uh, and he's never he's never even uh, falsely put anybody in prison because he can't do that. Because if if he tries to imprison someone, that person can appeal the sentence to a European court. And unless he's willing to give up on his massive subsidies from the European Union and leave the European Union, uh, he has to ultimately accept their court's jurisdiction over him. So Or Orban is a mischief maker and an opportunist, um, but he is not a global security problem in the way that obviously the nuclear armed Putin at the head of one of the world's great um, energy producers is a global security problem. A last question, David, and thank you again for your time. Um, we're 40 days in. I don't want to ask you to get out a crystal ball, but this has truly been one of the more impactful 40 days in my my memory. Yeah. And that includes 2008. That includes 9-11. That includes... Yeah. Uh, how do you see it? Um, sorry. Uh, uh, the, I, I fear, I, I'm, I'm not a military expert at all, and I'm not going to pretend to be one, but what I fear is that the war having gone very fast now begins to go quite slow. Um, and that the Russians dig and hold, um, and that the, the pace of operations subsides, the, the Russian casualty, bring their casualty counts under control, and they confront the Ukrainians with the task of now going on offense against them to drive the Russians out of Ukrainian territory. And that's a much harder project that, that is ahead for the Ukrainians. Um, so I think we're into a long period of grind, both 
militarily. There will be more atrocities where Russians kidnap people from Ukrainian territory and um, deport them to Russia. Uh, and we're in for a period of economic grind where the, the, the um, it, energy and finance will be very, very important. And so one of the things that we as citizens of democratic countries can do is be patient, um, understand why we're paying more uh, at the pump. That understand that um, why we're paying more at the grocery store. That this is these are things that there's a limit to what our own governments can do, uh, and we have to uh, remember that uh, you add up the economies of the European Union countries, the United States, Canada, Japan, Britain, other allies, and you're looking at an assembly that is 25 times the economic clout of Russia. Um, so let's let's put those resources to work to help our friends, uh, to help them embattle democracy, and then to help Ukraine rebuild. David Frum, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you.